Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into Season 5. Dr. Nicole Milburn is a clinical psychologist with two and a half decades of experience working with infants, children, adults and families in private practice, public mental health and therapeutic services. Nicole's vision is for a community that respects and values the perspective of all its members, where problems are identified early in life as well as early in the problem. Nicole's work is trauma-informed with a particular focus on the experience of infants, whose voices are often overlooked or otherwise not heard. Dr. Nicole Milburn, thank you for an incredible, insightful chat, and thank you for sharing your story. Nicole Milburn, thanks so much for chatting to me. Thanks for sharing some your time with us and also talking us through your journey and the amazing things you've been up to lately. So appreciate your time. Thanks, Sam. It's a real privilege to be invited to speak. Oh, it's fantastic to have you here and really keen to set the context for our audience. Do you want to give everybody a little bit of, I mean, you, you've been in the mental health space for quite some time and have a lot of experience. I'd love for you to start with what made you want to get into this space in the first place, especially as it relates to psychology and especially relating to infants and young people? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I've always been interested in how people work all my life. You know, as a child, I was just interested in what motivated people. I really wanted to make sense of things. And I think that's what led me into psychology in the first place. And then that the psychology training in Australia is not an easy path. It, it still isn't an easy path and it wasn't when I was doing it in the 90s. But by the time I got to do my master's and then turned that into a clinical doctorate, the training that I did had quite an emphasis on family, child and adolescent mental health. And I did some placements and realised that if you work with children, you get to play with Play-Doh at work. And so I was sold. I <laughs> know more. Exactly. It's fun. And how I then got into infant mental health is essentially from a really pragmatic perspective. It just makes sense to intervene before problems really get worse. It's not that problems aren't there in infants. It's just that you can, it's just more efficient. You can have six sessions with a six month old or a 12 month old and change something that would take six months or a year for an older child maybe two or three years for an adolescent or an adult. Wow. It's just effective. That's incredible, isn't it? And so we're finding more and more studies are being done in this area to see what is, what's working. Is that correct? A bit more evidence-based stuff out there? Well, yes. Yes, it is. But for infant mental health people, 
We've been talking about this for decades. The research has been really clear about the importance of the, the time in life from conception to age three. Four decades. The most brain growth happens between conception and age three. It reaches 97% of adult size by age three. Wow. And that's really important because that means that all of the building blocks for life are laid down from conception to age three. Because all of our behaviour, all of our functioning is mediated by the brain. So if we can just get it right from conception to age three, it's not a very long time, then we can change the trajectory for the rest of one's life. Wow. There's great research from, I'd have to look it up, from the 90s, I think, about the economic benefit of intervening in early childhood. In infancy, I think the Rand Corporation did a study in about 2000 that showed that for every dollar that was invested, you get $17 returned wow. in early adulthood. It just makes sense. That's incredible. So was it something, I mean, if we go back to for you studying psychology in the first place, was it something that always fascinated you? No, not infants. No. And, you know, before I discovered the Play-Doh, I turned up on my first day of my child and adolescent mental health placement and said to my supervisor, I don't know anything about children. I don't know any children. I don't really like children. You're going to have to help me with this. And so, you know, that to say that there was a, an, a huge turnaround yeah. <laughs> is an understatement. Yeah. And a big part of that was that the opportunity and, and the ability to create some meaningful change towards somebody's life from such an important part of their life? Yeah, very much so. Also, the, I, I had a realisation, which, which is almost a bit embarrassing now at this end of my career, about babies and about their internal worlds. The, the clinical master's that I did was a psychodynamic master's doctorate. And in psychoanalytic training, and psychotherapy training, there's always been an emphasis on an infant observation. And we did that in our training as well. Not not the full year, but we did an infant observation. And the the model for that is you, you literally find an infant and their family and you go and visit their home and just observe for an hour. And you do that for a year. And then you take it back to a reflective group and, and you know, you talk about what's going on. And that's been a cornerstone of psychotherapy training since the 1960s, really, since Esther Vick developed it at the Tavistock. And I had this moment in, in my infant observation where this was baby number two. So, so the mother was downstairs with the toddler and I was following the infant around and the, the baby was upstairs and sleeping. And so I was just observing the baby sleep. And then the baby woke up and started to cry. And I stood there observing this baby cry, thinking, this baby's in distress and he knows that I'm here and I'm not doing anything. What does that mean for him if he knows that there's someone there that that isn't helping? Mm. And while all this was going on in my mind, the mother came upstairs. So I didn't actually need to do anything. But I really thought about what is it like for this baby Mm. to be in distress and to have no one help? And so that, that was a really important moment for me because it, it just pivoted me to really think about the subjective experience of a baby, that it wasn't just, you know, a little object sitting there that just would wait. And it really made me think about the 
the relationship between a baby and a caregiver or a baby and a and an adult and what that might mean for how they feel and how they grow. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, some people say, oh, you know, they're too young to really be influenced or, or sorry, to have a voice or to really know what they want. Or, But when you look at it, someone needs to be able to communicate what their needs are as well and, and have, be a voice for them, don't they? Certainly in situations that you probably see. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you brought up that, Sam, because because it's a really odd one. Adults confuse the absence of memory in language from prior to the age of three to the absence of memory entirely. Mm. And it's just a nonsense. It really is. Because if you, if you go, if you know any six month, they will look at you and they will recognize who you are. Yeah. Well, that's memory. Yeah. They have a picture of you in their mind and they, you know, the next time they see it, they map it to the one that they had from last week. And their voice, like they, know, they, they understand voices. Yep. Yep. It's actually... If we think about babies as animals, humans as animals, the first thing a baby needs to do when they're born, as soon as they're born, is to find someone to fall in love with them. They hook you in. And there's this moment after birth, that, that's this period, not a moment, where they're really alert, usually, and they will gaze and, and that's when they just hook you in. If they don't hook someone in to love them and care for them, they won't survive. So our relational capacity is actually our superpower because that's the way that we survive. If you compare that to, I don't know, to a a giraffe, the first thing a baby giraffe has to do when they're born is to stand up or they'll die. But for us, it's find someone and relate to them and get them to love us. And once you've got someone to love you as a baby, (laughs) then, then you've got them wrapped around your little finger. And, you know, that's why we get up to babies time after time after time. And you know, we put up our own needs and, you know, you speak to new parents and they'll say, oh, I haven't had a shower for three days because I haven't had time. Now, well, that's only because they love the baby and the baby's like in control. Yeah. <laughs> so babies do have this way of communicating and get, getting you to do stuff for them because that's what they have to do. And they're, they're really, really good at it. Yeah. So, I mean, the course of your 25 years or so in the clinical private practice, how, what, what sort of things have you seen over these, over these years that s- some of the challenges that we're facing with this, and then also, are there any trends that are happening with infant mental health and where things are heading? Yeah. So over the 25 years I've been working, I've also worked in, in some organizations as well at Child and Adolescent Mental Health, the Royal Children's Hospital as well, and, and a program in Victoria that we set up to address the needs of children in child protection. And so what I've seen over the years, also through my involvement with an early parenting centre, the most important thing I think is the isolation of families. It's, it's a really big problem. Families are more isolated than they've ever been in human history. And one of my esteemed colleagues from the States, he cites research that in the mid 1850s, the average family number of people who lived in a home was about seven and now it's about two. So children, babies and toddlers and children are not growing up in that group that, that, that they have been. And, you know, for, for tens of thousands of years of human history, we raised our children in small family groups and the ratio was of about four 
adults to one child. And now we have this industrialized approach to childcare where we put five children with one caregiver and the impact on the way people grow and their resilience, their coping mechanisms has been really dire. Interesting point you make there where the ratio is really flipped, hasn't it? Mm. In the opposite way. You're right. The impact that that has means that they don't get the attention, they don't get the love, the nurturing, the caring that they need at that age. Is that what we're sort of seeing? Yeah, that's right. And they, they don't get as much as they as we'd like really of the, the, the attuned responses really to having a small number of caregivers really tuned into their communications and what they need and responding appropriately. So they'll have to wait longer. They might have to shout a bit louder figuratively. They might give up more easily. But if you think about, you know, raising a child in a, in a family group, you've got you know, three or four adults who basically do things in about the same way. They probably eat the same food, so they probably smell the same. They probably walk and carry the baby in a, in a sufficiently similar way. So the baby can then build up a template of, of relationships in the world and how, how things work. And when they don't get that s- sufficient similarity and overlap, their template is thin or doesn't develop enough of a pattern so that they can really then build up a predictable sense or a schema of how the world works. And so they're brittle. Yeah. Do, are, they, are they more sensitive as well as a result of that experience and a bit more vulnerable? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, that's, that's without even talking about adversity because too much adversity, of course, makes people more vulnerable. Yeah. A good amount of adversity builds coping skills. You know, yes. we've got to got to be able to suffer stress in order to learn how to deal with it. It just can't be overwhelming. But I think we've, what we've seen is that the, the threshold for managing uh, everyday life, the stresses of everyday life has dropped. So pe- children and families are less resilient. I don't quite like that word, but anyway, let's use that. And at the same time, the demands of everyday life have increased um, ridiculously, yeah. the, the amount of information that people have to manage, the pace of life, the isolation, all of that stuff. The, the, the way that we have constructed our lives now is so against our biology. It's a wonder that anyone is really managing. Yeah, I mean, you're certainly right. And that's, and that's parents and whatnot, let alone the kids. But the kids sense this sort of stuff as well because yeah. they're the ones that inadvertently feel the the follow-on effect of this. Yeah. There's a really great experiment called the still face experiment that I'd really encourage listeners to look up. It's, it's on the web. It's a YouTube clip and it shows, it demonstrates how tuned in babies are to adults' feelings and interactions. And it shows a mum and a baby looking at one another and the mum's smiling and the baby's smiling and they're having a bit of a play. And then the mother's told to put on a still face. So literally she goes blank. And it's really interesting to see what the baby does because the baby looks really disconcerted and then makes makes a real effort to get the mother to interact again. Yeah, and then and then actually falls apart when it doesn't work. And and when I say falls apart, I mean I mean that literally in that sense of cries, loses muscle tone, slumps. Yeah. And then recovers. It's really powerful. Yeah. 
and then recovers once the recovers when mum comes back. Yeah, yeah. isn't yeah. that interesting? So if I mean for people that may think, or I mean, it, it is possible that we can diagnose mental ill health in infants. Yeah, it's it's very possible. We have a really thorough diagnostic criteria classification system for zero to fives now. You can get it from the zero to three organisation in the States. And they've, they've kept the multi-axial system that we used to have in DSM-4 that they did away with in DSM-5. But, but we can clearly diagnose relational problems, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, communication disorders, regulation disorders. And is that through doing certain tests, looking at behavioural, looking at signals that you've developed or people have developed over their time of studying this? Certainly it's, we've got some really good measures for infants. We've got the, there's an infant toddler social emotional assessment, which is a a really good questionnaire. There's some really good observational measures. There's caregiver report as well. The, The best sort of assessment and diagnostic techniques are cover a range of different informants, always include observation, always include what the parent or caregiver says. And if they're in, if they're in group care, it's really good to hear what's happening. And are we seeing certain parts or sections of the community that are more vulnerable to mental ill health in this young age than others? Are we certainly seeing some trends? Is it higher in Indigenous populations? Are we seeing it in certain areas, low socioeconomic perhaps areas that we're finding that a lot of diagnosis are happening for for young kids? My specialty really is on the impact of maltreatment on infants and trauma. Right. And so the answer to that question is tricky because it's massively under-recognised and under-diagnosed trauma in infants. We did a study when I was with the Royal Children's Hospital where we ran a therapeutic assessment program for every child when they entered out-of-home care through child protection in in a region in Melbourne. And that was a great study because... It was an opt-out, not an opt-in. So we got them all. 30% of those kids were under three and half of those were under one. And a third of them met criteria for a psychiatric diagnosis. So, wow. yeah, so adversity, you know, adversity is just bad. And we know from the ACES study that your listeners are probably aware of the number of childhood adverse experiences correlated with a whole bunch of adverse outcomes in adulthood, cardiac problems, diabetes, depression, anxiety. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of them. It's a really great piece of research on 17,000 private health members of a fund in the US. Wow. So I'd encourage people to look at that as well. But the take-home message from the ACES research, adversity in childhood and the earlier the adversity, the worse off it is because of that pace of brain development, then what we really need to do is keep children safe and give them as good a start in life as we possibly can. Is it quite rewarding working in this space? Is it, yeah, confronting? What's it like working in this space? I find it really rewarding. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I do it. It is it can be really confronting. The, it, it can be really painful seeing depressed babies, mm. um, babies who give up, babies who are terrified, 
I've seen I've seen babies who are so distressed when seeing someone that they that you know trying to crawl away, trying you know a, a, a non mobile infant and trying to get away, and it's it's also really sad to see how much they're overlooked. That's one of the saddest things I find, and that that's what keeps me in the work is is really trying to keep pestering the system to pay more attention to babies. Because seriously, with the pace of brain development, I find in my busy practice, and we can we can take six weeks to get a case conference together, that can be half a baby's life. And massive change can happen in that time, and they just can't wait. So we need to do it much more quickly. Yeah, so is there some systemic opportunities here to try and speed this process up and... and and do this quicker like is there is that happening or is it still still quite hard and and clunky and it's it's quite a challenge the the federal government at the moment is embarking on a national early years strategy where they're really optimistic about breaking down the silos and establishing a good plan for a, a really good integrated plan for the early years and i'm optimistic about that we've got workforce issues but um a lot of those sorts of things are easily solved if we invest in the right support. The The biggest thing that I find, the biggest barrier is is what we've called, termed the baby blind spot because people just don't think about babies. They just don't think that babies will have a mental health problem and they think that whatever's going on with the baby, they'll just grow out of. Um, and they don't grow out of it. They grow into it. It becomes embedded in their brain architecture. Yeah, and the cost of not getting this at an early age can be quite significant on the person's life, but also, you know, the burden of, of the financial burden, the services moving forward to help try and get care after the fact rather than trying to get this earlier. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, the burden of disease from, poor, from adversity, and particularly in childhood and untreated mental health problems in infancy is huge. There's a really big study done, an international study uh, done that looked at children aged between 6 and 13 who were receiving behavioural treatment through child welfare organisations. They'd all been involved in child protection. That study found that adversity in the period between, sorry, that the high risk in the period between zero and two months was most predictive of, of dysfunction. Wow. in children 6 to 13. But conversely, their relational health was the best, their current relational health was the best predictor of outcome. So, so we can do something about this. So what, what do we need to do a better job with this? If we look at solutions focused on what we can change, if we could change something, what, what do you think the answer is? The first thing we would do would be actually include infants in all of our titles. Mm -hmm. Child and adolescent mental health, most child and adolescent mental health services are funded to see infants. So they should be called infant child and adolescent mental health. Infancy needs to be identified as, the, as a specific developmental period. It's as different to childhood as childhood is to adolescence. So we need to say it. I think if we if we start to actually say infants or babies and toddlers and preschoolers, then people will at least start to think about them. I've thought a lot about 
how we address the service gap. The the study that I did early in my career about the um, the children in care that really showed that when when you have an opt in, not an op, sorry, an opt out, not an opt in, you actually get the babies and toddlers. But as soon as you wait for somebody to identify a problem, they they identify children and adolescents. And that's partly because children and adolescents, adolescents are, are seen to be more of a problem. They're more visible. Children and adolescents in general are more visible because they're at school. So we actually need to be proactive. I think we need quotas. I think we need to have proportional representation of age groups in our services. And I think we need all people involved in any sort of health or welfare community services to really keep at the forefront of their mind the most vulnerable people in the family and usually that's the youngest ones to just ask i think that's that's a good point because too often it gets overlooked doesn't it and so you know, we're really missing an opportunity to include them in in the conversation and from such an early age it could actually make a really big impact on the rest of their life that's exactly right because what we see in the in the really young in the babies is if we think about stress, what's stressful for a baby is is completely different to what's stressful for an adolescent. Like you leave a baby in a room for four hours by themselves and that is really traumatic. You leave an adolescent in a room for four hours by themselves and they'll think it's Christmas because no one's bothering them. Yeah. But what happens to babies when they get they get easily overwhelmed by stress and they've got very few mechanisms to cope. So essentially they can, they can cry a lot and become really loudly upset. If that doesn't work, then they just shut down and dissociate. Dissociation and shutting down in babies is really common and, and you see that in depressed babies and traumatised babies. The thing about that is they're seen as good babies because they sleep. And I've seen babies come to my service who, you know, a, a four-week-old baby who sleeps for 14 hours and isn't that great because they're such a good baby. And, and oh. that is just diabolically wrong. It's terrible that a baby will sleep, that age will sleep straight for 14 hours. That's really interesting because you would think, oh, I've nailed it. I get my sleep where everyone's winning. But, but you're saying that actually it's, it could be a, an indicator that something's really quite right. Yeah. Wow. And so we need to, we really need to focus on what's not there. Mm. And that's really tricky. Because, I mean, it's a big responsibility, but at the same time, they're so young, you don't get, it's not like they can just tell you, you have to actually really read the signs, the signals, they're so young to be able to pick up what's going on. But yep. someone that's been doing this for so long, I assume once you do it so much that you get quite good at it. Yeah. And remember that babies are really good at communicating with us. So we use our own feelings and senses to, to guide us in trying to work out what's going on. Because when you're with a baby and you find that, like I was with one the other day with a family where there was a, I think it was four, two, and this eight-month-old baby. And there was a lot happening in the room, this clinical observation, and the four-year-old and the two-year-old were doing their thing. And, and the mother put the baby down on the floor, sort of over towards the other side of the room and didn't look at it. And the baby didn't talk or didn't do anything, didn't like, when I say talk, didn't vocalise, didn't cry, didn't, didn't do anything. And I filmed this. We use film a lot in infant mental health. And when I watched it back, it was 15 minutes 
that this nine-month-old was lying, just lying on the floor. And the floor is has carpet tiles over concrete, so it's not a very nice, yeah. cuddly space. No. And I think she just dropped out of her mother's mind. And it was easy for me to sort of, I kept sort of thinking, what's she doing? The baby's not doing anything. And then I would be distracted by what's going on with the older children. So it takes effort. Mm to look at what's not there and what was not there was any interaction with that baby. It's such an important part of mental health, isn't it, this? And, yeah, I think if you, yeah, recognising that this is such an important part of their life of the child but also that you can actually read signals at that age and, and you can actually look and see, interpret things that are missing or things that are happening and and read that and actually put that into some diagnosis that, Something's happening here and we need to try and help create a solution to try and help them out. Yeah, very much so. And if you ever go to an infant mental health conference, you'll see, which I'd encourage your listeners to do, you'll see lots and lots of video of babies because that's what we do. We, we That's how we learn. And the, the DC 0 to 5 is a really good framework which will help clinicians alert. It, it will help alert cl- clinicians to what to look for. Just in the way that the DSM does, you know, you look at an anxiety disorder and, you know, it's worries and et cetera. I think, yeah, I think it's so, so important this work that you're doing, Nicole. I think it's amazing. As you're looking forward, like what's, what stuff on the horizons coming up? Is there any new technology involved with this? Is there any, any, anything exciting happening in this space that you think will be a bit of a, a changer to help? try and either capture this earlier or create better outcomes for infants? Yeah, there's a, well, our, top, our technology has helped us enormously over the last few years just with all of our devices because we can film everybody <laughs> all the time and that helps us learn. So I really encourage clinicians to give it a go and film some interactions and see what they think. But there are some big things happening. There's the Australian Association for Infant Mental Health. You're, you're leading that, right? Yeah, I'm the yeah. chair of that at the moment. Yeah, yep. good on you. Thank you. So we're implementing a competency framework in infant mental health. It's been developed by the Michigan Infant Mental Health Association and adapted and to the Australian context. It's been implemented in WA and we're rolling it out across Australia now. And, and that's available on our website, actually, for people to have a look at. And that will guide workforce development, learning and training. Wow, that's, that's cool. Yeah, and it's not just for clinicians. It's for everybody working with infants. For example, I'm doing some training for the the child protection lawyers this week and they need to know about it. They're obviously not infant mental health clinicians, but they've they've asked for some training in attachment and that's part of the competency framework. So That's great, isn't it? It's great that's an opportunity to I mean it makes sense to try and educate them. Yep. Yes, that's one thing that we really want to achieve is, you know, mental health is not just for clinicians. I was really struck at the early, National Early Years Summit that about the, where about 100 people came together at Parliament House to talk about um, the early years and how frequently mental health and wellbeing was referred to. And it was seen as everybody's business and that's really good. But we really need to help people understand the the internal world of the infant when we're looking at infant mental health and well-being. Yeah. The framework is one way to do that. But just really talking about babies and 
uh, including their, their thinking about them and interacting with them as little subjects, not little objects, as little people and having rights. The World Association for Infant Mental Health ratified a, a statement of the rights of infants in 2014 and that's available on their website as well. And that's a really useful document too because, again, the human, the United Nations rights of the child doesn't refer, is not specific to the youngest people, you know, the right. infants. And so it's really good to, we just want everyone to think, to think about the similarities and differences, to not just lump the under fives in with children um, it, and that will change. It's such a good point, isn't it? Because it's, I mean, to give them, to acknowledge that it exists and to actually showcase that it's a very important part and it should be adopted and acknowledged as that is, is critical. Yeah, it really is. And, and when you do that, you see things like in our, in our terrible summer of black summer of bushfires, we saw that there were, you know, babies and toddlers were really affected by that as were all families. And some of them were separated from their families and some of them were in the fires. And and so to think about what their experience was that, that was different to older children and adults' experience is important. And, and AIM did help collate and write some resources for families that we put on the website for those babies and toddlers. We know from, we actually know, sorry, I might be digressing, but we know from some of the work after the Black Saturday fires in, in Melbourne yep. that the the long term outcome was worse for the younger ones. Was it? It's interesting, isn't it? It's such an important topic, and I think I mean we've definitely covered a fair bit here today, Nicole. If if people wanted to get in touch with you or find out more about what's going on in this space, what's and I know that you are chair of the leading association in this space. So, what is the best way for them to contact you to reach out if they want to know some more? The AIM website has a contact us section on it. So AIM is double A-I-M-H, Australian Association for Mental Health dot org dot au. It's perfect. I mean, it's just it's such an important part of, of the conversation and of mental health that often gets overlooked, like you said. And so to be able to shine a light on this important aspect of it has been really something that I've really enjoyed because I've, I've never really delved into this before, but it's, it's, it's a critical thing that, we, that you're doing and I think it's fantastic. So keep up the good work and, and we appreciate your time and, and sharing your story and your, your journey with our listeners. Thanks, Sam. I really appreciate being invited. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share with your friends and colleagues and if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.